We continue our study of the book of Ezra. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we come to Ezra chapter 3. We'd like to read to you just the last couple of verses of Ezra 2 as well. Uh, there's a uh, register of all of those people, according to their households, that uh, are returning from captivity from Babylon to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel, that prince from the tribe of Judah. Also, great-great-grandfather, of course, of our Lord Jesus, who in so many ways does also prefigure him. Well, picking up uh, reading in verse 68 of chapter 2. Some of the heads of the father's house, when they came to the house of, of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work six, excuse me, 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. So the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. And when the seventh month had come, that is one month after they returned, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and his brethren before the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, just as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of these countries, they set the altar on its bases, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. Afterward, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for the new moons and also for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Fast forward now to the spring. So in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah, arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God, the sons of Henadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his mercy endures forever toward Israel. 
Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet so many shouted for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard afar off. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we know that your glory is of uh, great weight to you and indeed great importance to all those who love you. We consider many things to be important regarding our faith and life and salvation as we considered this morning. And yet we pray that we would reckon things aright and that the things that concern your glory and the hallowing of your name should be most high in our heart, that we would seek you above all earthly joys, that even one day in your courts should repay more to us than a thousand elsewhere. We thank you, our Father, for the promises that we are to be with you in the house of the Lord forever, that in your presence is fullness of joy. We see that joy even in such accounts of the people of old and pray that it would be more and more our present possession and that we would see the work of God, though in a discouraging time and place, nevertheless advanced and your name praised. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Harold Ross started the New Yorker magazine uh, many years ago in some small offices with very, very little equipment. In fact, one day in a restaurant downstairs, he came across Dorothy Parker, who was one of his magazine's first writers. What are you doing down here? He asked. Uh, Why aren't you upstairs working? Well, somebody was using the pencil, (laughs) she explained. The pencil. Yes, so I came down for some coffee from such very humble beginnings. The New Yorker has, of course, become a famous and widely circulated magazine. Everything great, uh, practically, had to start somewhere and often with a small beginning. So it is here in the book of Ezra. In fact, the prophet of God would soon be sent to ask the small and discouraged people, look, who has despised the day of small things? To catch you up from last week, we began a study of the series of, uh, series of sermons on Ezra. Cyrus, the king of Persia, conquered Babylon in 539 B.C., the year before we read. And just as soon as he did, Cyrus issued a decree. He told the Jews, you are welcome now to return home from your exile. God told me to send you back and to have you build him a house for his name in Jerusalem. I'll pay for the whole thing out of my treasury, and here are all the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took from the temple before he destroyed it. And what a time it was. We sang from Psalm 125, when the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dreamed, when our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. And so, with that gladness, thousands of Jews, tens of thousands of Jews, left Babylon with all that they could carry, all the livestock they could bring. They traveled some 800 miles, more or less, with families, many of them, of course, on foot. They gave up. They said goodbye to their lives in Babylon. They they risked a dangerous journey with all their worldly possessions. They arrived back in the land of their fathers, the land of promise, 
but it was not the land that the old-timers had once known. This was a land devastated by war and had now suffered from 50 years of general neglect. Just uh, a month after they arrived, when the seventh month had come, where the high holy days come in Israel, they gathered together in the city of Jerusalem where the walls had been torn down, where the buildings that once stood now were piles of rubble, including the temple that had been destroyed some 50 years before. Hostile people had moved into their land. There was nothing happening spiritually that was of any value, and God had brought them back to a place of discouragement. But it was a new beginning. God had promised them a new beginning, so they set up camp. They cleared off the rubble where Solomon's temple had been, and there in the first part of the chapter, we read that they rebuilt the altar. As soon as they finished laying the temple, and and soon they finished laying the temple's foundation. And that's what this chapter is about. And it's about this time we read that the trouble begins. For as soon as that temple's foundation was laid, there was joy mixed with weeping. The young people were thrilled to see the foundation laid. They had, they had only seen the Babylon and the, the, the idols and the temples that were given over to terrible worship. And here they were now back in their land, in the city of God's choosing, and they were doing a good work. The foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. They had never seen anything like this. But the old-timers had seen something like this. In fact, something far greater, Solomon's temple. And for them, this foundation amidst all the rubble with broken down walls in Jerusalem, the whole site was pitiful. And while the young men were shouting for joy, the old men were weeping with grief, not being able to tell who was laughing and who was crying, except that the division fell among, along the line of age. They, they had such high hopes, is the point. They had given up everything. They had They had gone out in joy to fulfill a vision and to to see the glory of God established back in his land. And this was a disappointment to them. And I think you can understand something of their disappointment. We often are let down in our Christian lives. We often feel that it's not what we hoped for, certainly not what we expected, Maybe we've been disappointed in how little our service to God or our witness for God has produced. Maybe we've been disappointed in our relationship with other Christians, maybe with the church. We, we had hoped for so much more. Um, the people here are divided, and it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And this also is going to take a toll. I, you know, I think we expect opposition from outside, and, and many of God's people are are heroes against this dark oppression outside. They are up for the fight, but almost always the most discouraging and devastating opposition is from within. Among the people of God, criticism, pessimism, wrong expectations easily discourage us. Slow progress easily discourages us. We can lose our initial excitement, and our emotions, we find, are not sufficient to sustain us in the long run. This is the beginning of the trouble, as I say, but this is not a pessimistic book, not in the least. For as we see chapter after chapter, in spite of many different trials and tribulations, fightings without and fears within, 
God's people are going to be preserved and gain strength and learn some important lessons along the way. And this is why Ezra has recorded the whole story for us. Not that we should just merely remember some bit of history in the past, but that we might now take heart ourselves and not give up, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, despite present discouragements, despite disappointments in our heart, for we will reap in due season if we do not faint. These things, I say, were not written for that generation. They knew the story. They were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come, for God's people, indeed, in all times to take heart and have confidence and to especially notice the working of this great grandson uh, of Judah named Zerubbabel, how he will lead the people in so many ways, anticipating our Lord Jesus. Because, you see, the situation, although we might express it very differently, is not so different. I mean, we, we have these longings for the, for the glory and the kingdom of God, Zion, city of our God. And, 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 and we look around, and it's a discouraging ruin. And here's God's cause. It seems a laughingstock to the world. And here's God's people already divided and like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, at the beginning here of this book, we'll see confused, aimless, disorganized, and what are we to do? Great enemies without, greater enemies within. <coughs> God's own people are not quite so sure if the whole thing is even worth doing, and they've only just laid the, the, the foundation stone, right? Meanwhile, they have pressing needs. They have just arrived back in a land with nothing to welcome them, what are they going to eat? What are they going to drink? What are they going to wear? They, they have some priorities, you see. But here, right at the beginning, we are at least here introduced to a prince, a prince from the tribe of Judah, a man who could build up Zion despite all these things. Children, he says, we will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and you'll see all these things will be added unto you. And at last that we find what the people of God really needed, a true shepherd for these sheep, a man who will be the repairer of the breach and the restorer of streets to dwell in, a man whom we can follow, a man who can lead us and teach us the will of the Lord and what we need to do, a man who can take a ruin and return the captivity of Zion and build up the glory, purify the sons of Levi. He will suffer that God's people may prosper. And they will suffer with him in order that they will be glorified together with him. Because you see, this ultimately isn't a story about Zerubbabel, but about his greater son. And it's given to teach us in so many ways, uh, way back then, uh, to prefigure to God's people the, the true story of the ages that is coming. To teach them the lessons that they will need to know when the, when the grandson of Zerubbabel appears and when he leads a discouraged and divided people to great victory in Zion. So, these things were written for our instruction, I say. The book of Ezra covers a period of about 80 years from the end of the Babylonian exile in 538 to the completion of the second temple in Jerusalem in 458 B.C. It describes the challenges and the opposition that these exiles faced, but how God blessed them in their struggle— it shows us how God is faithful to his promises, 
restores both his people and his dwelling place together and prepares the way for the Messiah. The purpose of this book is to encourage the people of the ages to trust in God's power and purpose and providence and protection when all seems to be lost, even when we face difficulties, discouragements, and dangers. It challenges us to be faithful to God's word and worship, which is interestingly where it starts. You would not perhaps have expected it to start there, but that's where it starts to be faithful to God's word and worship, and to avoid compromising with the world. The book of Ezra reminds us that God is always working behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes, and he can use practically anyone to fulfill his will. I mean, you know, even the devil himself in so many ways, right, is the Lord's devil and has his role to play, I suppose. So the book of Ezra points us ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of Zerubbabel, the true temple of God, as a matter of fact, who has come to be our return from exile. And it teaches us that God is always faithful, though we are unfaithful. Reminds us that God is sovereign over the great nations and rulers of the earth. He he has their heart in his hand, and he turns it like a watercourse, whithersoever he will, as he pleases. It inspires us to seek God's glory and honor, knowing that it will be richly repaid Though we are discouraged and weary, it tells us, press on. So I thought of doing various uh, themes from this chapter, and yet I decided that really the main theme, where it starts, is where I should start, and I'll save the other themes that are in the background for the weeks to come. Today we're going to consider basically one thing, the priority of worship according to God's word. Yes, if they were going to do a great work to restore the glory of God in the earth, they're going to start with worship and to do it according to God's word. Reminds me, by the way, of the time we built this, uh, we we planted this church, I should say, not not built the building, but planted the church. It it was just, it was just us, just our family uh, in the living room. Uh, There was nobody here. So we just, we said, well, let's just start with family worship, right? (laughs) Just a few of us here, but we're going to start with worship of God. And then we invited a few more of uh, people we met and friends and so forth and Soon we had two other couples uh, with us, and uh, I, I don't know, uh, not despising the day of small things, S- starting with worship. You know, all the church growth guru people, they say, look, you need to have this in place and that program, and you need to have enough people for this ministry, and you can't launch until you have all these other things, probably a year to a year and a half out. I said, let's just do it. Let's just launch. Let's just do. Let's just do worship in our home and see what God see what God does. And well, here here we are. Maybe I didn't do it as well as uh, Zerubbabel, but uh, it it is the first priority, is it not? And that's why I think it is first in this book, the priority of worship, according to God's word. The book of Ezra highlights at, right from the beginning the centrality of worship in the life of God's people. When the seventh month had come, the people of Israel assembled as one man in Jerusalem. It was the the time for the fall festival, the festival of booths, by the way, or tabernacles, you might might know, other high holy days associated with that time. Um, So it's just a month after they arrived back in Israel. Now, after such a long journey with hardly any time, you might have expected, look, let's spend the first year Um, building our homes and plowing our fields. And especially in light of the fact that verse verse 3 
Fear is on them because of the people of the lands. Look, uh, opposition is already starting to grow. Like these people aren't happy that we move back here. Maybe we need to have a little time to organize some self-defense, a strong and well-armed militia. So there's all these other considerations which you know, we might have expected to have first. And really, you know, all, all these things as we go from Ezra to Nehemiah and there's the sword and the trowel and all these other things, all that is a consideration. All that will be, con- will be concerning God's people soon enough. But what is most important to them is that God be central and his worship have first place in their lives. And all, that else, all else that could be said, help from man is in vain if the Lord is not in his rightful place. If the builders, so if the Lord doesn't build the house, the builders are going to build in vain. If they put God first, rebuilding his altar, which he'd sent them there to do, then they would have to trust him for the rest. And that's a hard thing to do, but that is the big lesson of this chapter. If they put him first, they're going to have to trust him for the rest. Seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, trust him to take care of all the other needs. Now, they understood the priority of worship. And uh, I, I, I will uh, point out not just any old worship. You, you note the care taken at many points in this ch- chapter, the, the scrupulous attention to detail, lest you missed it, that they devoted to make sure it was pleasing to God by being according to his word. Verse 2, everything that they did was according to the law of Moses, which, of course, previous generations had neglected, and you saw what happened to the country then. Verse 4, in accordance with what is written and according to the required appointed number of burnt offerings for each day. And verse 5, with all the other offerings that were done in their proper order, twice in verse 8, that the Lord's work was supervised by those Levites 20 years of age and older, as the law specified, and so forth. And just throwing a couple of those phrases in there to make you see that everything was being done very carefully according to God's word, not as they might have pleased, but as, as pleased the Lord. This is always a mark of godliness in the Bible, that the people take the worship of God with great seriousness, that it would please him. So we can take from this that God must be at the center of our lives and certainly the center of any great work, right? They had come all that way to restore his glory in the earth. Surely now, as they begin this great endeavor, it must be clear we will gather together to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way to his glory. Lesson number one. I say, not where we would have expected this great story to begin. Discouragement, often a difficulty in those cases. Our feelings being unreliable guides to lead us. The big question is not how we might feel, but whether we are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We'll be up and down, and this people will be up and down, but this is their first and final commitment. And so the first thing that they do is they rebuild the altar, and they resume the sacrifice. And the climax of this book, spoiler alert, is the dedication of the temple 
the symbol of God's presence and glory among his people goes to Nehemiah and then the city, right? The book of Ezra teaches us that, that we, should, we must worship him first and that our worship should reflect his priority to us in reverence and joy and especially a commitment to his word. So um, a lot of times in the church we try to talk about uh, you know, what's important. We talked about doctrine this morning, a word that's already suffered a, a great deal, though it's a fine biblical word, very important to the Lord. But you know, we say, well, you know, not all doctrines are created equal. Fine. Uh, Machen says that in, in his book as well. But you know, we think what's really important is what's important to me. That is to say, how I'm saved, things that pertain to my salvation. Now, those are of first importance, but other things... Um, how God's worshipped, you know, things that only, things that only uh, have to do with the glory of God, second or third level thing, right? What's important to me in my life is a matter of first importance, and I do not deny that. The gospel is a matter of first importance. But the things that only concern God's glory, they're unimportant? I, I don't buy that value system. We, we live in a, a, a great ch- time of challenge in our modern worship. It's obvious we're living in a time of very rapid change in the church in general. And I would like to park here for a few minutes now and to help you think through some of these things, as I haven't spoken on this in a while, and things are changing faster than ever. The, the, the times they are a-changing. And I want you first to understand that how God is worshipped and glorified in the earth, though it is a matter of disagreement among saved, sincere people, is not a question of no worth. It's not a tertiary matter. The things that most impact God's glory should be most heavy upon our hearts as well. Now, we have a lot of change in the modern world. In fact, in a recent study, Worship Leader magazine, not that I read it, saw a reference, uh, reported that 30 years ago, new songs in the church would be sung for worship for an average of, anybody want to guess how many years? How long would a new song stay around? Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above. Uh, All right. 30 years ago is the question now. 30 years ago, how long do you think they would last? Okay, you guys are more pessimistic than I expected. I thought they would last a little longer, but uh, 10 to 12 years back in those halcyon days of the 90s, right? Early 90s. I mean, some of you remember, right? Uh, Refiner's Fire, Our God is an Awesome God, right? The greatest hits of the 80s, 90s, and today. Okay, These, uh, these songs were sung in the church for about a decade until they were, you know, finally put away for good. That, that was the way it was back then. Uh, shorter, 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 little interesting graph. Now, a song lasts, you're right, between three and four years until it's permanently retired. And I don't know if this can possibly accelerate, but can things change any faster, right? Uh, That's just in the matter of music where it's perhaps most clearly seen, but things are changing quickly. This, this, this church and how it worships and operates, this would not st- have stood out at all in the last generation. In fact, it would be very similar if you went to a, a Baptist or uh, you know, other you know, evangelical Methodist or you know, independent church. I mean, you, you, you name it. It, 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 doesn't, it wouldn't stand out. But now, in a generation, we seem right old-fashioned. Is traditional worship and 
traditional spirituality something that we are advocating? No. Things aren't better because they are old and they are no worse if they are new. If by traditional especially, people mean according to the traditions of men, may God deliver us. Okay, um, but the point is, uh, things are changing, not just the music. New practices are coming in. Medieval practices are coming in. Liturgical traditions, spiritual disciplines, the traditions of men from many ages and many sources are finding their way into the life and worship of the church and into the life of its members. All sorts of new approaches are being tried. Some of them indeed may be better and more faithful to scripture, and let's not despise them. But what is most distressing is that in this rapid revolution, so it seems, There is a general attitude of indifference to what the Bible teaches about worship and to the laws and guidance that it lays down. In this rapid time of revolution, there is a general attitude of indifference to what the Bible teaches about worship and to the laws and regulations that it lays down. There is a great concern for what will please the members of the congregation slash audience but there is not the same concern as to what will please the Lord. Can you see the difference between what I've been describing and Ezra chapter 3? A profound difference. A profound difference. Sermons more and more as the year passed devoted to subjects that people find more interesting because it's difficult to get people to be interested in things like Ezra chapter 2. In singing, not only are God's songs thrown away, and not only is the subject matter indeed being thrown out so that it never makes its way into the Christian church, it's being done more and more by professionals. And I know, perhaps you do, how discouraging it is when you find yourself among people, maybe among a large number of people, who are just actually not singing but singing along, if they are singing at all, singing somewhat half-heartedly to what somebody else's praise is doing. Meanwhile, You're crying out for something better and stronger and more faithful and edifying and joyful and praising the Lord. Worship is turning into evangelism because they say this is the best way to bring people in. Now, you know that's not the case, right? In fact, in the third and fourth centuries, many churches, especially in the West, didn't even allow unbelievers to attend the second half of worship. Did you know that? It was called the... uh, So... uh, yeah, uh, the, the, the Latin verb, uh, missio, misera, missi, missus. Remember my principal parts, right? Misera, the verb to send, that became the mass, right? It's named from the sending away. Because in the second part of the service, they sent the unbelievers away, right? They, had, they didn't have the word. As I'm saying, they had the word. They sent them away, and they, they uh, had the liturgy of the, of the Lord's Supper and other things all by themselves, They didn't even want the unbelievers there. So we can't say that that worship evangelism must be the best way to bring people in because unquestionably those centuries were the most successful centuries for evangelism in the history of the church. Why the hard-hearted people even of North Africa were one in those centuries in such a climate. So we live in a day of much confusion. What's being neglected is what's most emphasized here. What's being neglected is the question, will our worship please the Lord because it is done according to his word? 
or is it merely designed to satisfy the desires of the world for this moment? One minister I knew told a story about this. I've told it before, but I hope you'll bear with me as many people haven't heard it here. Uh, this is from Rob, Rob Rayburn, uh, whom some of you know. He, he says, when I was a lad of nine or 10 years of age, I gave my dad a record for his birthday. A record, LP, long playing album, 33.3. Yeah, oh wait, I'm sorry. What am I saying? You guys know what that is. They, old, they outsold CDs this year, right? Okay, I gave my dad a record. The truth of the matter was that the record was one that I wanted to have, (laughs) not one that my dad would have ever chosen himself or be likely to listen to. I suppose when I bought it, I thought that if I liked it, then he would like it too. But, and I remember this distinctly as if it were yesterday, the feeling has stayed with me all these years. I remember being very ashamed when he opened my gift because at that moment, it was so obvious that the gift I had supposedly given to him I was really giving to myself. He got that record because I wanted to listen to it. When we start with, we consider the liberal position this morning, our feelings, our experience, and we build worship that pleases us, we find that we will arrive in a very different place than if we start with God's word and we seek to rejoice in it. Not that God doesn't want us to worship with hearts full of love and joy, just the opposite. As a matter of fact, the things that he has to teach us, in fact, the songs that he has given us, are far richer and far greater, far more wonderful than what people are coming up with today. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes. Um, He wants us to worship him according to his word and to do so with hearts full of joy. And he, said, he explains, these things are not contradictory at all, for true worship is to be at the same time joyful and lawful. And if you love me, Jesus says, you will obey my commandments. Hypocrites' hearts are far from me, though they may worship me with their lips, for they're teaching the doctrines and commandments of men, worshiping in vain, according to the traditions of men. Why should worship according to God's word kill our joy, I ask you? Why should worship according to God's word be less pleasurable, not more? I ask you, is a baseball game more fun when the rules are all forgotten or ignored or broken? Is marriage more loving and wonderful and joyful when God's laws considering marriage are ignored or broken? I I tell you, it is no different for, for worship. And what we find here at the beginning of Ezra is it's according to his word, according to his word, according to the law of Moses, according to the command of David, uh, all these things, uh, the appointed, the appointed number. And, And then at the end of the chapter, they shout for joy as it's laid, right? At least, uh, not the old people, but the rest. Uh, this is to be the pattern that we must keep. I do remind you, by the way, that the Protestant Reformation was also a great revolution in worship in so many ways more than a revolution of theology and for the same reason. 
the way that the Reformation hit most Christians in that day was when they just went to worship. The differences were astonishing and profound. The minister conducted his service in the language of the people rather than Latin. He faced them as he administered the Lord's table. The preaching was restored. The word of God was heard and believed and, and uh, uh, required of the people. The table of the Lord was then administered frequently, not once a year, as had been done in the late medieval time. Not just the bread, but both the bread and the wine were given to the whole church. The people were asked to participate in a variety of acts of worship, not least of which was singing, which had almost all been done by a trained choir in a different language. This dramatic overturning of customs of centuries of long-standing tradition with, for this newfangled worship was a tremendous advance in what life and vigor it brought to the church as it suddenly with a jolt went back to God's word. So I'm not saying that all worship according to God's word must look the same or sound the same. There is great room for freedom and expression and things will be different in North Africa than they will be in North America. But true worship will fully conform to God's word and will be joyful in heart. And we will long to present to him not what we might like today, not what the world might like today, but what would please him and glorify him. And we can evaluate worship in a church by asking whether it is done in such a way that this church actually believes that it is offering something to the Almighty God, that it is speaking to the living God, that it is no small thing to come into His presence and to address Him and worship Him, and that great care must therefore be taken to ensure that all that is being done is worthy of Him and reverent and right in His sight. Three verses in the passage contain references to the temple, 6, 9, and 10. Five references are then given to the Lord's house, so eight in all. The temple of the Lord or the house of the Lord is the place where God dwelled amongst his people and manifested his glory where he was worshipped. His people went there to offer sacrifices and thanksgiving. It was the place of their celebration. But the remarkable thing, of course, is that this... The church is now called in the New Testament by those very same names. This is the house of God. This is the temple where the Lord dwells in our midst and inhabits our praise and walks among us. The building where we meet is just the place where we gather for worship. God's house or temple can meet in a private home or park or barn or cathedral. And though we may call this a sanctuary, it's important to remember that the place is not sacred, but the people are. And he is in our midst. And our great high priest, as we read about him this morning, has asked us to come in a certain way. And we must be careful to not only do so accordingly, but to do so joyfully. For the will of the Lord is right, and his glory is our prime desire. So in conclusion, this chapter is about a new beginning, a new beginning with God, starting off in a way that we might not expect, assuring us that new beginnings are indeed possible with our Lord. Indeed, no matter how spiritually low the people of God might have gotten. You know, I think there's times in all of our lives when we need a new beginning with God. Maybe you failed the Lord terribly in one way or another, 
Maybe you drifted carelessly into the world's ways and neglected the things of God and are far from Him. A disappointment or a trial may have caused you to drift from your fellowship with God and His people that you once enjoyed. You need a new beginning. But where, where to start? Here is a scene of a new beginning that you can also even apply to yourself. Devoting yourself to God's worship and God's word as of first importance. Joining together with God's people. They're going to need each other. None of us will do alone well. Devoting yourself to God's service. Start giving your life for something beyond yourself. Taking courage and not letting yourself being intimidated by the world. They were intimidated, but they persevered anyway. Being ready to give up what you hold dear. Whatever is required. These people had to give a lot, leaving a lot behind. And even when they got there, they said, okay, this is going to cost us to do that. Let us give according to our means. Learning not to despise the day of small things. You know, sometimes we start and we think, oh, who are we kidding? Right? We're never going to come to anything much. What are we doing? No, no, don't despise the day of small things. Press on. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And this chapter assures us that God is pleased to do great things for people in such a state. May he do great things for you just as he did for them. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. As those men of old uh, wrote, again, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, we ask you to write it upon our hearts. As a pilgrim people, we too long safely to arrive at home. And we pray, O Lord, that this uh, vision of seeking first your worship and your will and having all these other things then added unto us, we pray that we too would find that you are first place in our hearts, in our lives. O Lord, grant your rich blessing on your word, not perhaps what we had hoped to hear, but what you had for us to hear 